Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this audio program is for my new podcast feed on CastBox. If you're listening to this somewhere else, like on YouTube, please just take 60 seconds right now. You don't even have to pause this or just open up another browser and download the CastBox app. You can download it on your smartphone and subscribe to me and listen to it there. And this is a really great podcasting app. I've looked thoroughly at all the different podcasting apps and podcasting players that are available. And I really like this one. I think I can communicate with you really effectively via via podcast. And this one is just a major improvement. And it is, of course, free. It is, of course, commercial free. So download this podcast there. And in this podcast episode, I'd like to introduce myself, my story, and my values. And it may seem a little self-aggrandizing and narcissistic to devote an entire podcast that'll be 60 minutes or 90 minutes or however long this ends up being just talking about myself. But there's a couple of really good reasons why I think it will be worth your while to listen to. So I do encourage you to listen to all of it before you proceed to listen to any of my other podcasts or content. First reason, I listen to a lot of podcasts or follow YouTubers that are interesting and informative, probably like yourself. But if I don't know the personal story, the background, and the biases of the person teaching me, I'm lacking real crucial context for what they have to say. For example, there's a philosopher I follow on the internet named Stefan Molyneux, and he has a really great podcast and books, and he, as a child, had a really terrible, abusive relationship with his mother. So I I know that everything that he says kind of comes with that filter, and it gives me a, a crucial kind of nuance as I'm learning from him. Or you take the book uh, Atlas Shrugged that a lot of you have read, or uh, at least you've at least you've heard of it. And the book Atlas Shrugged has a totally new dimension of meaning if you know Anne Rhine's personal story of escaping hell on earth in the murderous Soviet Union. If you think about your favorite authors, if you think about the books you find yourself most engrossed by, uh, the authors that you most enjoy reading, these are probably people who you know their background story well. And if we, me and you, are going to have this relationship of me being in your earbuds or on your screen frequently, I'd, I'd like you to get to know me quite intimately so you can maximize the informational utility out of this relationship, right? Number two, I'm going to discuss my values here. And values are important. If we share some fundamental values, then there's a lot more that we can learn from each other. If our values are fundamentally different, there's less that we can learn from each other. And 
if our if our values are fundamentally di- different, <laughs> you'll know by the end of listening to this podcast. And I'd encourage you not to waste your time with me and go learn this biohacking, life hacking stuff from someone else whose values more closely align with you. And I have a good example of this. Recently, I found this uh, interesting guy on the internet named Richard Hoagland, and he has some kind of uh, fringe but extremely fascinating theories about science, history, and astronomy, which, which, which I'll maybe describe later on in this podcast. And I was having just like this novelty-induced mindgasm while I was listening to his ideas. So I listened to like hours and hours of his videos and podcasts. And in doing so, I learned that his political ideological values were really quite different from my own. And knowing that he has a fundamentally different world view than me, uh, a worldview that I think is wrong and disproven, that makes me somewhat skeptical of his theories about science, history, and astronomy. And I'm not totally uh, throwing his ideas into the intellectual rubbish bin because he's in a different political tribe than me, but it provides me with a revealing context for his ideas. So I'm 32 now, so I think that my values are not totally set in stone. My values are still kind of fluid and plastic, but I don't think I'm going to change my mind on any really big things. I I remain somewhat open-minded, but I don't think I'm going to go 180 degrees on anything really fundamental. I think, I, I bet, uh, I bet anything that in 50 years, I'm still going to believe in the free market, free speech, coconuts, salsa dancing, and taking smart drugs. Number three. So at 32 years old, I think it's a pretty good time to do this mini autobiography in audio format. I'm young enough that I can relate to all the millennials and even teenagers, but I'm old enough that I can relate to Gen Xers and maybe even some baby boomers. I grew up while technology and the internet was flipping everything on its head, as opposed to in the world post everything being flipped on its head. So I grew up in the world where we went to the library instead of doing a Google search to learn things and where we wrote uh, letters as opposed to emails. That that world uh, is not totally foreign to me. And finally, I have a pretty interesting personal story. I've seduced a politician's daughter in Colombia. I've hung out with spies in Kiev, Ukraine. I've almost died twice underwater. I caught on fire, quite literally, once during a first date. So I don't think that my story will bore you. So we'll start with my values. And it's impossible to choose one of my values as the most important. So I'll start by sharing, I think, my most tantalizing value, which is seduction. So I'm a seducer. 
I live a charmed life because I am a passionate practitioner of the art and science of seduction. I seduce women. I seduce people I want to be friends with. I seduce the barista I order my coffee from. I seduce customers of clients. And of course, at this very moment, I'm seducing you. Seduction is paradoxically both selfish and generous. A seducer seduces for his own pleasure and benefit, first and foremost, but from the moment the seduction begins to the moment it ends, it must be a pleasure, it must be an enjoyable, uh, emotional experience and emotionally enthralling for the other person. Seduction has to be a win-win for both parties involved. A seducer persists. A seducer knows when to be patient and wait and pull back, but they also know when to really aggressively go after what they want. And a seducer also learns that for women to be seduced, they typically want a bit of drama and negative emotion mixed in with a positive emotion. They want to go through a bit of an emotional roller coaster, or shall we say, uh, have a full spectrum emotional experience with you. A good seducer is like wasabi. And wasabi is so great because as a food, it's a source of both pleasure and pain. There's that, that burning in your, in your nasal cavity. But at the, but at the same time, it just adds that, that delicious little something extra to your sushi, right? And the seducer also learns that this kind of, this kind of applies to people in general. If you give people exactly what they want and you make them comfortable, you make them totally comfortable, you make sure that it's just always positivity with you. In, in any domain of life, this is, this is a person that's going to end up kind of getting bored with you. And I'm going to tell a story about seduction. And this one comes from Colombia, which is a place that, of course, uh, piques everyone's interest. And this is not the most glamorous seduction, but I think it's actually uh, a really instructive and relatable. And it was a seduction that I was pretty proud of. So I met a cute Colombian girl at a party and we met at the dance floor and dancing is a really underrated seduction skill. I've taken some private classes and some group classes and have gotten good enough that I'm a little dangerous on the dance floor, but really to be honest, I'm not a very good dancer. And dancing is kind of like a shortcut to pure femininity. We have all these uh, social, all this social programming that prevents us from being purely masculine or purely feminine. And if you want to see a woman released in her femininity, go to a dance floor. Okay, back to the story. Other than that, other than the dancing, our interaction was really not outstanding. We had a little bit of conversation between songs, and I told her that I thought she was cute and would invite her for a drink sometime. 
as a seducer when I ask a girl for her digits or contact information, I don't make a really elaborate offer. I don't offer dinner at a fancy restaurant or suggest that we go rock climbing together while we're on LSD or do something uh, terribly entertaining like that. My rationale is that if a girl is attracted to me enough, she'll give me her number and accept my invitation to do something boring with me. If you have to offer a girl free champagne and cocaine on your yacht for her to be interested in you, then you're just trying too hard. So I texted her the next morning because if your initial interaction with a girl is not exactly full of fireworks, you want to invite the girl out almost immediately. If you wait a couple of days, you'll become a very stale memory to her. So I invited her to a food fair. There was kind of like a gastronomical festival going on in town, and I thought it might be fun to visit. So we walked around the festival, and she hit me with the first major challenge which was that she had a very serious boyfriend in Canada. Oh, Canada. So at first, I was like, why the hell did you come out with me on a date if you have a serious boyfriend? You know, that was like my nice guy side. That was like the angel on my right shoulder. And then, you know, the angel, of course, pops up and and, and, you know, tells you, you know, to, to do the right thing. And, and so I thought, well, you know, she has a boyfriend, so I'm going to respect that. And when we can, we can just be friends. You know, I, I wouldn't mind being friends with her. But then, you know, the, the demon on my left side, on uh, my right side popped up and said, well, you know, maybe, maybe I could just try to seduce her anyways and just, just see how far I can get. I bet it won't work, but, you know, just, just try and see what, what I can get away with. And uh, it really was like a weird, uh, it really was kind of weird, but we had a, a first date vibe going. We were holding hands and making a lot of uh, physical contact and having a flirtatious conversation, but almost the whole time she was texting her boyfriend and talking about her boyfriend and, you know, showing me like, I don't know, little jokes and silly things he was texting her. It was, it was a hell of a mixed signal. And it made it one of the, one of the weirdest dates that I've ever been on. And <laughs> as you can imagine, uh, at that moment, what the date really needed was some social lubrication, some alcohol. But at the time, I was doing a 90 day sober trip. I wasn't drinking alcohol, but at the festival, there were these different craft beer vendors. So I kept talking to her about how delicious craft beer was and how much I love craft beer. And finally, I offered to share a beer with her. So I bought us a beer and I took like one tiny little sip of it and she drank the rest. And we were sitting at a bench and I think... Uh, even though she was talking about her boyfriend, her body language was kind of open uh, to kissing her. And so I leaned in and kissed her and then told her that I was just wanting to uh, taste the craft beer on her lips. And then I changed the subject. And after kissing a girl for the first time, you almost always want to not 
talk about the kiss. You almost always want to do something different. You don't want her, you know, logically thinking a lot about kissing you and where this is going, especially with, with this girl. And I'll mention, if there's a small chance of kissing a girl, if you're a seducer, always try to kiss her. Even if there's only like a 25% chance of kissing her because, you know, your heads aren't quite facing each other right and it's not quite the right moment in the conversation and you haven't quite built up like enough sexy flirtatious energy, try kissing her anyways, even if it makes it totally awkward. And this is because then she knows that you're the kind of guy that will try to kiss her. And it very, very clearly communicates that you're like a lover and not another guy to put in the friend zone. And actually the majority of the time that you try to kiss a girl for the first time, she will reject you. She will turn her head and give you the cheek, but just keep trying. Wait five minutes, try again. Wait 10 minutes, try again. Wait 15 minutes and try it again. So that date in had what's called very bad logistics. I didn't have a good place to have sex with her because at the time I was staying at a hostel and I didn't have a private room there that night. I was staying in the dorms of this pretty rowdy party hostel. But I just, I just wanted to see how far I could get. So I invited her to come over and watch a movie. So we took a taxi to the hostel. And I knew that usually on Sundays there was a few private rooms available. So I asked the receptionist if I could check into a private room. And lucky, lucky gringo me, uh, the, there was a private room, but unluckily the receptionist kind of uh, made, I'm not sure if it was intentional or unintentional, but the receptionist at the hostel really kind of tried to cock block me. And they took freaking forever to check me into the room. The receptionist took like 15 minutes shuffling papers around and doing nonsense on their computer before giving me the key to get into the room. Uh, but good thing I had been studying uh, Spanish very intensively and I had been socializing a lot, going out like three to four nights a week, talking to people. So I had just about 15 minutes of really brilliant conversational material in Spanish. You know, if I had just sat there for 15 minutes or uh, let her play on her phone as uh, girls are wont to do while we waited, she would have gotten cold feet and started texting her boyfriend because I, but because I was able to emotionally stimulate her for 15 minutes, it was no problem. So finally we got the room and I, as I walked in, I joked with her that we weren't having sex. No way it was gonna happen. I was a, a nice conservative boy. And this is actually, I found, a pretty good thing to say to a woman that you're trying to seduce because it kind of gets them thinking like, why wouldn't he have sex with me? It, it seems silly. to the, the male mind hears this and thinks, well, you're just saying that you're not going to have sex with her because you do want to have sex with her. So logically, you're just doing something that you're trying to be clever, but you're really not that clever. But females, their minds work a little bit different on 
differently than ours. And, and this particular line really has worked wonders for me. Then I found myself in a position most men are quite familiar with. We were cuddling in bed, watching a movie, and I was doing the intermittent physical escalation. And I just, uh, so, so if, if I just started ripping her clothes off, she would get uncomfortable and leave. But I would, uh, you know, kiss and caress her lovely Colombian curves for just a few minutes. And then I would pull away. And eventually she asked me if I had a condom and then we made sweet love. And then she thanked me for a uh, wonderful day and left. And usually I don't try to seduce women in relationships, but in this instance, I wanted to just see how far persistence could get me. And it got me all the way. And actually, there's there's kind of a funny postscript to this story. If I was going, uh, I was going to see her again. Uh, about a week later, we scheduled another little date, and she was coming over in about an hour. But I was running low on condoms and lube, so I went to the grocery store to uh, get those things along with coconuts. And when I got home, she texted me and canceled her plans. And uh, I was like, what? Why are you canceling our plans? You know, I, I pressed her a little bit about, about why. And she told me that actually her mom was behind me at the grocery store and saw what I was buying. And now she was in big trouble and not allowed to leave the house, which was kind of a culture shock moment for me. But then I started thinking, wait a minute, how did your mom recognize me? And uh, it turned out that her mom demanded to know everyone that she hung out with. And so she showed her mom my photos on Facebook, my videos on YouTube, and my website. And so I was like, wow, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna not, this, this is, uh, this is where I'm gonna cease my, my persistence. Being a seducer really has paid off. And since I decided to live life as a seducer, I've had a, a charmed life. Okay, let's switch gears to my next value. And uh, my next value is Christianity. Yes, this is a, a major switching of gears <laughs> after that story. I, I recognize, I understand that, but I'll tie it all together for you. But I want to talk about Christianity some. So Christianity is important to me, but to be honest, I'm really not religious. In the past, I was very religious. I was a born-again evangelical Christian, but now I'm not. I just cannot believe in all these silly stories about this God that is so philosophically inconsistent. However, I believe in Christianity. Christianity in its current form is a belief system that motivates people to be moral. I'll get into these discussions with other atheists where they will say what atheists always say, which is that the world would just be better off without religion, that individuals and society would make better moral decisions freed of religious guilt and all of its arbitrary rules. But I disagree with this. So an atheist, of course, would never disagree 
that humans are animals. Humans like having unprotected sex. <laughs> we prefer to lay around and be lazy if we can. We like eating uh, uh, fatty, sugary food. We enjoy getting drunk. We, uh, we take what we want from others. Our biological drives are so long, you know, we're animals. And our biological drives are so strong that without an equally strong moderating moral, f moral force, we would just bash our neighbors over the head with a rock and rape his wife because we, we are animals. And I think that like the top 5% or maybe the top 10% of the most intelligent people in the world would do just fine without religion. The top 5 to 10% are capable of thinking long-term about how their actions affect others. The top 5 to 10% are going to be able to say no, uh, are going to be able to say no. Instead of, you know, getting drunk and having sex, I'm going to study this engineering textbook so that I can have a lucrative career in 10 years. And I think that you could probably have a completely non-religious society that was comprised of top five percenters. If you could get, if you could have a society that was just the top five percent most intelligent people, I think you could completely get rid of religion and it would still be a pretty good place to work. But that is, of course, totally hypothetical. That's nowhere close to the real world that we live in. There's these, these great books about uh, systems of secular ethics by philosophers like Stefan Molyneux and Sam Harris. And these systems of ethics are, uh, they are, they're philosophically consistent. They're, they're quite good systems of ethics that do work in a, uh, universe without, without God or religious or religion or metaphysical, uh, forces of retribution at play. But these systems of ethics are only going to appeal to the top, again, five to 10% of the most intelligent people. What percentage of the general population in your country would be interested in reading a long, thick, dense, nonfiction book about systems of secular ethics? Not, not very much, right? You know, maybe 5% if we're being extremely charitable. And I say that this is about the same percentage of people that could and would consistently practice a secular system of mora morality. Also, these secular systems are all about the individual, all about you as an individual making better decisions. These systems of secular ethics totally fail to be like the scaffolding of uh, close-knit communities that provide emotional, spiritual, physical, and even financial support to the individual members. They, they are just uh, systems that are asking individuals to practice what's really kind of like a Herculean uh, level of, of self-control. Furthermore, there's almost no evidence or examples of countries or society getting better as a result of getting 
rid of religion. And there's mountains of disconfirmatory evidence. If you've read uh, the book Anti-Fragile or Black Swan, you know that disconfirmatory evidence is always more important than confirmatory evidence. And if we look at history, especially if we look at recent history, which is, I think, the most, the most relevant, the worst genocides of, of history took place in godless societies that were uh, implicitly or explicitly atheistic societies. In the Soviet Union, they murdered 20 million of their own countrymen. They starved and murdered 15 million Ukrainians. In Maoist China, they starved and murdered like 60 million. Uh, you know, people debate whether Nazi Germany was religious or not. Although, uh, what's pretty clear is that the leadership of the Nazis, the decision makers, it's pretty clear that they had great hatred for Christianity and that they viewed it as something that could be, that was only good just for manipulation. So uh, as far as, uh, it's, it's, it's history, uh, atheism is just, uh, is just the most blood soaked ideology of recent history. And you know what? Perhaps in coming decades, science will figure out how to hack people's genes and how to increase the average human IQ to like over 110 or over 115. And then we could have a peaceful world or society without religion. But until then, metaphysical repercussions for bad behavior is an is a really important glue holding society together. So that's that's why I value Christianity. That's why I, I will uh, stand up for Christianity whenever I can, whenever it's uh, consistent. Also, I want so, so I identify as what people call like a son of the West. And I was having a conversation with my dad not that long ago. And he was kind of, uh, he was kind of, uh, remarking to me. He was saying, you know, hey, Jonathan, I, I always felt so clueless as a parent and I was always making mistakes as a parent. So I'm amazed that all four of my children turned out to be such healthy, happy adults. I, I really don't know how that happened. And this is kind of what I, this is kind of what I told my dad was that, I am the inheritor and benefactor of this ecosystem of Western civilizational values that encourage especially men to be, to be moral, to work hard, to take risks, to be inventive and innovative, to stand up for and stand up against injustice and fight for what's what's right and all of these different even even though you know my parents were not perfect parents these uh values that i came out of guide me in the direction of being a productive healthy happy member of society and just despite some some mistakes that that my parents made that that, that your parents probably made. And Christianity is really at the foundation of all of those values. If you look at the classic liberal values of tolerance, equality, compassion, forgiveness, altruism, these were all values that Christ 
preached about. And so at this point, some people may be saying, okay, interesting, interesting. But there's a huge, I, I'm detecting a huge inconsistency in your values here. You say that you care about Christian values, yet you're this, uh, you're this seducer guy who's, you know, uh, who's, you know, stealing, uh, stealing Canadians, <laughs> girlfriends away from them for, for his own, uh, for his own pleasure, right? Well, I'm also a pragmatist. And I was one of these naive young Christian men that hoped to one day in church meet a cute, young, virginal lady and we would fall in love and get married in the church and lose our virginity together to each other on our wedding night. And the reality is that this just does not happen anymore. Uh, at the time, I was like 17 or 18 years old, and I did not see any of my peers in the church falling in love and getting married. What I saw was like a lot of casual dating going on, and then guys or girls would leave and go to college, and then they would come back and talk about partying and hooking up in college. And I was seeing some young adults who were like in their late 20, their mid to their late 20s, getting married and having children in their early 30s. So this is really kind of like a terrible prospect or an offer that's being made to you if you're a horny, virile, young Man, you know, your, your church and your, uh, your, your leaders are all telling you, okay, what you, what you gotta do is you, you're gonna abstain from sex, abstain from masturbation. Uh, you know, it's, it's important to read the Bible and pray every day. And then, uh, you're gonna do this for about, uh, you, you're gonna do this, you know, you need to serve your church and your community real diligently. And then after about eight to 10 years of this, Finally, you're going to get vagina and it's going to be worth it. We promise you it's going to be worth it. And I was a pragmatist. And I was like, that's, that's just not a deal that I'm, uh, that I'm willing to follow through with. And so I, I did try doing it the Christian way, but it did not work. Not even remotely. I tried doing some dating as a Christian and it was pretty frustrating and really unproductive. And I think that modern day Christianity is doing an exceptionally bad job of channeling male sexuality into marriage. And I think that's one of the really major reasons why Christianity is on the decline in Western countries. And, uh, you know, hope, perhaps some smart, uh, Christian leader will listen to this at some point and maybe they can try to do something about that. Cause I think it really would, uh, I, th I think that the sexuality is such a, a strong, a foundational motivational force, uh, in, in all of human relations that this is, uh, something that's really undermining the coherence of, of, uh, of Christianity. Anyways, uh, so I, uh, you know, after, you know, years of, you know, frustration, uh, trying to meet someone as a Christian, uh, late one night I was searching on the internet in kind of a weird dark corner of the internet about seduction. And that, uh, drew me into this life as a seduct, as a seducer. So those, those two things are kind of, uh, connected to each other, actually. Okay. My third value that I want to speak about is 
entrepreneurship. I've been an entrepreneur for about a decade now, and you'll have to judge for yourself whether I'm a good entrepreneur or a ter- uh, or a pretty terrible entrepreneur. After a decade, some entrepreneurs are billionaires or millionaires, but I am not. I haven't been uh, financially all that successful, probably uh, fairly fairly average for uh, my peers, but I have to say my entrepreneurship has really paid off in lifestyle design. I have tremendous freedom in how I spend my time. I spend uh, virtually none of my time doing things that I don't want to do or, you know, dealing with people that I don't want to deal with. And that's thanks to the lifestyle design that I have done uh, as an entrepreneur. And you may find a little of my history of my entrepreneurial path interesting. So, I did not go to college. I graduated high school and then I went to work in 100% commission sales, doing uh, cars, doing uh, real estate and mortgages, those sorts of things. And you're, you're working just making 100% commission. You only get paid for the value that you're actually producing. And this is a hell of a way of of uh, treat of training someone a solid work ethic, and I, uh, as I mentioned, I was you know I was a young guy. I was interested in seduction, and I was tr- I I knew that uh, nightlife <laughs> nightlife was where a lot of seduction went on, but I also saw how nightlife could be kind of a big waste of time, and I really I I didn't want to be kind of like my peers that were you know, just wasting tons of time and tons of money, like going out and getting drunk and going to bars and then being hung over for half a day afterwards. That that did not make a lot of sense to me. So I got interested in doing organization and marketing of nightlife events. And I started organizing parties at different nightclubs uh, around town. I started by doing kind of these uh, these parties that I probably, you would not find me uh, dead at these parties now, but kind of like these, these rave kind of events where there's uh, a bunch of DJs and uh, probably people doing drugs and that sort of thing. And I transitioned from that to doing uh, fairly upscale parties at, at some pretty nice nightclubs in Denver, Colorado. And these nightclubs are probably all closed now because nightclubs have this, uh, have this brutal, brutal life cycle. Not, not very many of them survive. And being a nightclub promoter, that was a job that I'm, I'm thankful to be out of that industry now, but it was actually a quite good business for a young guy to be in because it taught you uh, social skills. Social skills, your social skills are probably the, the foundational skill that organizing and bringing together people and throwing a really great, big, profitable party at a nightclub requires. And what it also does is it teaches you some marketing skills. It teaches you some sales skills. And uh, what's also a really excellent thing is that it builds your network of acquaintances really, really 
quickly because everyone wants to know the guy that has a hookup at really great parties at nightclubs and it's kind of a way of uh, of it's kind of a shortcut to a elite social circle that if you're you know if you're a 21 year old 22 year old guy who you know is not uh, doesn't have a whole lot going for him it's it's really a shortcut into a social circle of people who have a whole lot more success and influence and I met a guy doing the nightclub promoting named Patrick and me and him decided to become business partners and he was an extremely hardworking guy. He was really good at sales. Uh, he had even better social circles than I did. He had even better organizational skills than I did. And in our business partner together, he was the one that was always more productive than me. But ultimately, he was a, a psychopath. He had some some really core character issues that caused the death of our partnership and actually caused his own death. He's, uh, uh, rest in peace, Patrick. He's, he's no longer with us. You may want to check out the, the podcast I did on, on the story of my crazy up and down relationship with this guy. So we had started a marketing firm together and as a marketing firm, we found that a lot of our clients were, everyone is interested in digital marketing and internet related stuff. And so I taught myself web development skills for a system called Joomla. Joomla is a system kind of like WordPress, but you can build, I think, better, even better websites than you can with WordPress using Joomla. And I, I was, like I said, me and him, we both had a strong network and strong sales skills. And so we were, we were so busy all the time with our, with our clients, with people that wanted to hire us that I never had time to go to school. I imagine when we started the business and we saw there was so much demand for web development and different types of digital services, we were like, okay, I'm going to go to college and study this thing in college so that I can really be a pro but we we just kept selling kind of like mm, kind of like Bill Gates uh, how Bill Gates there were certain things that Bill Gates didn't know how to certain operating systems and software that he didn't know how to build for I think it was IBM but he just went in and pitched it anyways in the meeting and then IBM paid him the big bucks to build a particular type of operating system and Bill Gates had to invent it it's a it's a situation that that is uh, almost any entrepreneur has gone through and when me and Patrick broke apart our relationship when we had a a divorce of of business so to speak so to speak i focused specifically on the web development stuff and a couple of years after that i i was i had uh, built up a a pretty good little freelance business as a web developer. And then I saw this movie called Limitless starring Bradley Cooper. And in this movie, there's this guy and he's kind of a loser, but then he starts taking this drug that unleashes the full 
potential and power of his mind and memory and capacity to acquire skills. And he goes through all of these adventures with his, with his limitless mind. And I said, wow, that's something that I want to figure out for myself. And so I began this path of researching this field of biohacking and performance, human performance optimization. And then around that time, I also moved to Costa Rica. I was starting to get a little bit bored with Denver, Colorado, and one of my old Joomla clients had convinced me to move there. And to be honest, Costa Rica turned out to be a terrible country, but I'm glad I went. Before I talk about Costa Rica, I am going to talk about another value of mine, which is biohacking. And biohacking is kind of like a cool phrase. I'm not sure who came up with it, but it's a cool phrase for optimizing health for performance enhancement. And this is something that I've taken quite seriously for quite a while. I have used over 90 different smart drugs or nootropics over seven years. I've experimented with numerous mindfulness techniques and technologies. I spend at least 10 hours weekly reading studies on PubMed about health, anti-aging, and performance enhancement. And at any given time, I'm reading a book related to anti-aging, neuroscience, and health. Oftentimes, books by scientists can be a whole lot better educational tools for learning about science than uh, reading reading studies can because a lot of times in books they take a bit more holistic view of of of, of the scientific topic in 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 debate or in contention or where that's being that's being discussed and they they present it in a way that that makes more sense using some more uh metaphor and that sort of thing. So I'm kind of a freelance journalist focusing on this field of anti-aging and uh, performance enhancement, but I'm also a hardcore practitioner. If biohacking sounds cool to you, that's what this podcast is mostly going to be about. I am not the greatest seducer, entrepreneur, or web developer, but there are not very many people in the world who devote themselves full-time the way I do to researching this field of biohacking and self-experimenting. In various universities and institutions around the world, there are, of course, scientists and academic professionals that are better researchers than myself, but these people are always really focused a lot of times myopically on a singular really granular aspect of performance enhancement science there'll be like a a protein transport mechanism that affects a specific neurotransmitter and the receptor that it is associated with and they'll know just everything that there is to know about that, but they won't have much of a holistic picture of how that fits into uh, 
into your total health and, you know, your uh, ability to uh, work on your biology in such a way that outputs a happier, more productive you. And so what I do is I read the abstracts of their studies along with a bunch of other studies, and then I go and apply their findings to my self-experimentation. So I'm kind of like a holistic health geek, and the title on my business card is Applied Neuroscience Strategist. I mentioned that biohacking is a cool phrase for optimizing health for performance enhancement. And there's this all too prolific misconception about health that, and, and here it is, it's that you do healthy things and you abstain from unhealthy things so that you'll be healthier in the future, long-term in the future. So that like when you're 65, instead of being a, uh, a fat and happy 65-year-old, you'll be a skinny 65-year-old. And that, you know, you'll live to being 95 year, 90 years old instead of passing away at 75 years old. And someone on, uh, I think it was Twitter, captured this this kind of sentiment, and they said something to the effect of that, I'd rather trade the possibility of my eighth and ninth decade of life in exchange for having more fun and good memories in my third and fourth decade of life. And unfortunately, this is a really prolific misconception about health, and I think that it kind of results from the the way that the mainstream has framed health. And it's framed it in really a, a terrible way. And that's part of the reason why we are, uh, why biohacking is branded as being a little bit different than just trying to be healthier. And I'll, I'll give you a good example of this. The other day I saw this 60 Minutes segment on anti-aging and they uh, were showing this group of, of healthy people that were interested in anti-aging stuff and what they did was they found just the the dorkiest group of people that were into a uh, an, an anti-aging practice which is actually a pretty good anti-aging practice where you don't eat a whole lot and they were showing these people and they had these really unappealing recipes where they, and it showed them having this big uh you know kind of communal dinner together and they were eating like these really minuscule little amounts of just flavorless looking food and they were all these uh they were all older people and they were all like just really dorky seeming and they were all really skinny and they're all like really proud of being skinny and it just it just did not make healthy look very sexy and the truth is that health being healthy is the ultimate sexy thing you'll look a whole lot better you'll feel a whole lot better you'll be more productive you'll be you'll make better decisions your brain will work better you'll make more money you'll accomplish more of the things you want to accomplish you will carry on a more moral and meaningful life 
it really in 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 the medium and even in the in the short term making decisions making uh, decisions based upon willpower and discipline to be more healthy they make you all the more happy and the the mainstream is is just doing has done this terrible job of saying you know hey make difficult healthy decisions now and then in 30 or 40 years in the future you'll be a little bit better off and most people are just not capable of thinking more than 10 years into the future a lot of people are not even capable of thinking six months into the future and so the the message the good news about biohacking that i'm here to evangelize here to deliver to you is that even if you're a relatively young relatively healthy person now if you start making some some difficult decisions if you start applying some willpower and doing some biohacking you're going to feel better and look better and your life is really going to get noticeably and measurably better in the medium term and sometimes it's sometimes it's in the short term sometimes it just takes a couple of days or a couple of weeks to see some improvements in your life when you start making some some good decisions and changing some things I'll encourage you, if this is a topic that's kind of interesting to you, I'll encourage you to check out a podcast I did on ethical hedonism. And hedonism, you've probably heard this word before, but you might not know exactly what it means. A hedonist is a person that believes that pleasure is the greatest good. A hedonist is a person that's kind of like, I'm not sure if there's an afterlife. I'm not sure if there's anything, you know, I'm not sure if there's anything that goes on after this life that rewards you for what goes on in this life. So you might as well enjoy life as much as possible while you're above the ground. And this is a, this is a philosophy that I subscribe to, but I'm an ethical hedonist and an ethical hedonist is a person that pursues as much pleasure as possible. They want as much pleasure as possible in their life, but they want sustainable pleasure. They don't want pleasure that is in the long term going to cause them more pain than pleasure. They want net positive pleasure. And that's what biohacking is all about. And then I also want to mention, uh, finally, what, one of the things that's inspired me down this path of, of, uh, of, of being really serious about health is I, one of my best friends and my business partner, he was a guy named Patrick, and he was a unethical hedonist. He was a person that was always driven by just uh, partying as hard as possible and just uh, getting the most extreme amount of dopamine out of any evening that he could and this was a guy that in in retrospect he was he was a, a psychopath he had uh, he, he was addicted to almost everything that you wouldn't want to be addicted to and he had this he, he had that classic romantic movie character kind of devil may care cavalier attitude towards life where he was like i'm just gonna I'm just going to make all the crazy decisions I can to 
uh, indulge every single vice I can to get the most amount of pleasure out of out of out of anything, and uh, ultimately this attitude killed him, and he died relatively young. He was. Uh, I, th I think he was in his early 30s, and he was actually a, a fairly successful guy because he had uh, a lot of a lot of redeeming talents that kind of balanced out his his monstrous uh, addictive capacity for self destruction. I did a podcast. Uh, I'm not sure if I should call it a eulogy, but I did a podcast when he passed away with some more of my thoughts. I, I shared a little bit more of this crazy, crazy story that I had with this guy. I share some of the, the lessons that I learned from him because counterintuitively, th there's actually maybe some value to having some relationships with psychopaths because they will abuse you, but you will learn a lot from them about dealing with the world and dealing with dealing with people. There's there's a good reason why so many psychopaths are are high performers. And there were some things that I learned from this one, and I discussed them in that podcast. You might want to check it out. And then I also think of another friend that I had when I was a real young guy. And he was a, a Russian American guy, and he had just a a classic sense of American hustle. And he was a sales guy. He was he was a, a very talented salesperson, and he provided me like some inspiration in my career at a young age, where I really didn't know what direction I wanted to go in life. And this was a guy that. If you had met him when he was about 20 years old, you would have said, this guy's going to be a millionaire in five years or 10 years because he just had a really solid work ethic and he was very talented. He was a good looking, charismatic young guy. And he was, uh, he appeared to just be on this trajectory for life success, but he liked to party and he liked uh, a bottle of vodka or whiskey. And I, w I worked with him for several years and we were good friends for several years. And I saw how his chemical indulgences robbed him of his ambition and how they, they fundamentally changed his personality into someone who's, uh, who's now I think a loser. I don't talk to him very much anymore, but he fell so far short of what his potential was. And I think he, like many other uh, reckless yet ambitious young men, uh, fundamentally damaged his brain with uh, excesses of partying. And so I, I've seen the I've seen the dark side of ambition, and I've seen the dark side of hedonism, and that makes me very passionate about wanting to understand our biology and understand what our uh, scientifically mm, verified rational ways to, again, maximize the pleasure in life, but do it in a sustainable way. And that's, that's what biohacking is about. That's a lot of what my educational content is gonna be all about. Moving on to my next value, it is travel. And I have lived abroad for five years now, and I've traveled to over 25 different 
countries. And so I mentioned earlier that I kind of started my uh, life as a digital nomad wandering through the world in Costa Rica and that Costa Rica was a terrible country. And I'm going to tell you why, because if you've never been there, you've probably heard generally good things about it. You may think, ah, Costa Rica, that's like a, a paradisical Latin place, right? What's what's so bad about it? Well, I'll, I'll explain a bit of my, my ethos and what I look for in travel. And there's some issues with Costa Rica, why, why you shouldn't go to Costa Rica. First of all, the capital city of Costa Rica, San Jose, which is where you fly into. And when you're traveling in Costa Rica, inevitably you're going to spend a day or two or more in San Jose, Costa Rica. And it is one of the ugliest cities in my life. It is a city where you'll find just heaps of trash sitting on street corners. And one of the other things that I, a culture shock moment I had there was I arrived in San Jose, Costa Rica, and I came out of the airport and hopped in a little taxi cab, hoping that the taxi cab driver wasn't ripping me off too much and, you know, began driving through the Costa Rican morning traffic, you know, taking in the, these, the, the gray, dirty buildings and dirty streets of the country. And then uh, the taxi driver dropped me off nearby the hostel where I was checking in. And I needed to walk to the hostel. And uh, I had the address, of course, saved in my smartphone and also printed out on my itinerary. And I walked to uh, the next street from where I'd been dropped off. And I noticed there was no street sign. And I was like, hmm, that's odd, okay. And then I walked to the next street and there was no street sign. And I was like, that's odd, no street sign. And then I walked to the third street and there was still no street sign. And then it dawned upon me that this was a country without street signs, which just, makes life all the more, it's one of those little things that you don't realize makes life simple until you don't have it. And that was just so prototypical of everything about Costa Rica. And in fact, it's not even the capital city of Costa Rica that's ugly. Every city that I visited there was, was, was ugly. It's, it is a country that has tremendous natural beauty. There's some, some, uh, national parks there that really do look like the postcards of Costa Rica that you've seen that are tremendously beautiful. But everywhere that there is a city, everywhere there that there's people living, they do their damnedest to destroy the natural beauty of that country. It really is, it really is kind of a shame. And it, you, you travel around the country just saying, it, it's, it's such a shame that, uh, humanity is, humanity and their garbage is encroaching upon the, the tremendous natural beauty of this place. Okay. Some other things about Costa Rica. The internet is really bad there. If you're a person that you use the internet a lot for work or for leisure, you're, you're going to have your patience tried continually by the slow and unreliable internet there. The food there is awful. All the food there is like fried crap. Um, it's, it's, it's not like Mexico where they have some really amazing spicy things. Everything there is just generic fried 
junk. That's actually why I st- that's why I started eating uh, raw coconuts there. And counter counterintuitively, you think of a country like Costa Rica and you think, well, you know that the trade-off is that uh, the cost of is that it's a cheap country. You know, it's less developed economically, so it's it's cheap, right? You're you're getting what you're you're getting what you're paid for. You're getting what you're paying for, right? And unfortunately, not. In Costa Rica, everything is quite expensive, actually. If you go to a grocery store, you'll find that the cost of things in the grocery store is pretty similar to what it is in the United States, in North America, and sometimes it's even a little bit more expensive. And this is because in Costa Rica, for some stupid reason, I'm not sure why, gas is asininely expensive. So everything else in the country is uh is 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 very expensive so you're you're kind of getting ripped off everywhere that you go with costa rica also it has been a tourism hotspot for about 50 years now at some point back in who knows the 1960s and 1970s there was a a very effective advertising pr campaign in america that has since then sent a a unlimited stream of gringos down to Costa Rica to spend their uh, their tourism buck and get sunburned on the beach. And as a result, it's a country where you are just another gringo, another foreigner to get uh, processed through their tourism system and extracted and, you know, taken advantage of just a little bit for all the money that you got, that you don't have this experience, this this lovely experience that you have as you travel the world, where you'll meet people and they'll be genuinely excited to meet you because they're a foreigner. They will have a, a genuine curiosity about you and where you come from and and your culture and your language. You're you're not going to get that in Costa Rica. You're just you're just another uh, just you're just another dollar sign to them. And then finally, and I promise this will be my last point of beating up on Costa Rica, is that it uh, lacks those beautiful Latin women that that may be your inspiration for uh, packing up all your stuff and getting on an airplane and crossing borders. The the women there are, it's, they're just, they're, they're probably not what you're looking for if you're a, if you're a red-blooded man who is interested in spreading his seed a bit. However, Costa Rica does have one redeeming feature that I'll, that I'll bring to your attention, which uh, you may want to go there just for this. And to be honest, I may return to Costa Rica just for this, which is that it has great surfing. Costa Rica has, uh, it, it has really good beaches, as I mentioned. So if you're, if you've ever been curious about coast, about surfing, surfing is a great hobby. It's, it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a flow state inducing activity that really stands on its own. And if, if you are uh, somewhat athletic, if you enjoy the ocean, you should really get out there and, and try it. And it's one of the best places to learn. And if you already know how to do it, if you're pretty good at it already, and you want to take on some more challenging breaks 
it uh, it offers that. And it, it it's there's so many surfers in Costa Rica that there's some great infrastructure built out for it. So that that would be the reason why I might return to Costa Rica. And if there's any Costa Ricans out there, I, I apologize if you're offended, but if, if we're being honest, I, I think you all would uh, agree with most of my most of my criticisms. So what I did was uh, I, I did, despite these downsides, I made some I made some friends in Costa Rica, and as I said, I did enjoy the surfing, and I spent about three months there, and then I moved on to its neighbor, Panama, and Panama is where I actually recommend that people go if you want to experience the charming things about Central America. Panama City is, uh, in contrast to coast to San Jose, it's a beautiful city. People call it the Miami of the South because it has, I think, over 110 of these really beautiful skyscrapers that form this iconic cosmopolitan city skyline that I, I really kind of miss also, miss actually. It's, it's a big city. It does have some parts of it that are very poor that you really wouldn't want to visit, but it's it has also a lot of uh, cosmopolitan charm. It has a lot of the things that you're you're looking for, and economically, Panama is night and day to Costa Rica. Panama has the Panama Canal, of course, and this makes everything in Panama extremely inexpensive. In fact, you can buy really excellent Chilean red wine for cheaper in Panama than you can in Colombia, which is, which is further south. That was something which is, which is further south and of course closer to Chile. And that was something that, that shocked me. And in fact, everything you would want to buy is a pretty exceptional value there in Panama City because of the, the economics of this canal that cuts a continent in half. The, the one time that humanity cut a continent in half, it's, it's with, uh, with picks and axes and, uh, earth moving machines. It's, it's pretty impressive. I recommend you check out the, the documentaries on that. So I spent some time in Panama and Panama has all of it. Panama has all the natural beauty of Costa Rica with, uh, with none of those, with none of those downsides. The women are even a little bit better looking in, in Panama. And so I spent some time there and I was honestly kind of in a workaholic mode when I was there in Panama. And I was like, okay, you know what I should do is I should schedule a vacation because Panama has, it has pretty good internet. It has a, you know, co-working spaces. It has places where you can kind of get, get plugged in and where you can get to work as a digital nomad guy. So I booked a vacation traveling through what's called the San Blas Islands. And there are over 300 islands that are in between Panama and Colombia there in the Caribbean Ocean. And the funny thing is that these islands aren't on the map. Well, at least they're not on Google Maps. If you go on Google Maps and you go and look at this area, you just see blue. But in fact, and I can assure you of this, and I have photographic evidence to prove this, there are 300 islands there, and they are the beautiful 
white sand beach, Caribbean islands that you've fantasized about. And I took this tour through those islands on a speedboat. And it was kind of an adventure. For example, when we were doing a our border crossing, we needed to dock our boat to do the border crossing. Because what there is, is there's kind of like, there's, uh, there's little towns along what's called the Darien Gap, which is this very rugged jungle, uh, thick jungle area of the country there. And so there's these little towns um, that are there on the coast. And there's a Panamanian town, a Panamanian town, and then there's a Colombian town, and that's the border crossing. And so we went to go and dock there to cross over, and the swell was too intense. The, the waves were too strong, and we could not dock our speedboat there. We tried for about an hour, and we just could not make it happen. And so the captain of the boat came to us, and he said, okay, what you're going to do is you guys are going to swim to the beach, and, uh, you know, you're, 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 it'll be a little bit, little bit rough, but you're going to swim to the beach. And then I am going to take your passports in this waterproof box and I'm, I'm going to kind of, uh, carry it through, through the swell. And I've, I've done this before. So don't, don't worry about it. It'll be okay. And we were all like, all right. Well, you know, we signed up for some adventure. So. So we jumped in the water and swam to the beach and it was not exactly a inviting beach. I recall it being a really, it was a uh, rocky, rocky beach and there was a bunch of broken glass on it and a, a dead bird. So it was not, it was uh, one of the, the less inviting beaches that I've washed up on in my life. And what we discovered was that the, waterproof box was not so waterproof and actually all of our passports got a bit waterlogged in it and we all had quite the moment of horror uh, for a moment thinking that our passports had been destroyed but it turns out if you just lay your passports out in the sun for about 45 minutes they dry just fine and so we got our stamps and then we crossed over to Colombia and our first 24 hours in Colombia were a bit of a disaster as well. We actually got robbed by a pig, so to speak, uh, a pig of the oink oink variety. We arrived in a little town in Colombia and we checked into a pretty dilapidated hostel in kind of the outskirts of town. And next to this hostel, there was a big, ugly, fat, gray, oinking pig. And the pig we had noticed had kind of broken down the poorly constructed fence there. And we, we assumed, you know, the pig was, I don't know, trying to come in and hang out with us and get food or something like that. So we uh, made a bit of a game of uh, drinking rum and throwing throwing rocks at the pig. But don't, don't worry, not not that large of rocks, you know, I'm not a not an animal abuser. So uh, we were we were playing this little game with the pig and drinking some rum and relaxing and the sun went down and during that day it was kind of funny. There was a uh, there was a, a cute girl who was working at the hostel, who was the hostel employee, and she had checked us in and then she told us 
you guys are gonna stay here at the hostel alone tonight and I'm gonna go camping with my friends. And we all thought that was a bit a bit odd that she was uh, shirking her responsibilities. But, you know, we, 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 we managed to uh, amuse ourselves, of course. And this girl left and then we found, we discovered that she was a very popular girl around town. And actually there was about uh, five or six different local guys that came over to the hostel that day to, to see what she was up to and to say hi. And then they were all a bit disappointed that she wasn't there, but they kind of hung out and socialized with us a bit and they all seemed like, like nice Colombian guys. And then that evening we were, we were hanging out on the deck and one of the girls in our group came onto the deck a little bit shocked and she said, hey, one of you guys jumped on the bed. Why did you jump on the bed? And we were like, wait a minute, none of us jumped on the bed. And she was like, yeah, there's a, a giant boot print on the bed in our room, like a dirty boot print that just appeared. And we were like, no, none of us went in there. And so then we went in the room and we checked the room and we discovered that a number of our uh, things had been stolen. And we, uh, the window was open and then we went around to the back of the hostel, to the part of the hostel we hadn't visited yet. And we discovered that there was a broken gate in the back of the hostel. And then we called the Colombian police of the little town who were surprisingly competent and they made a police report for us. And then they told us, you know, hey, they should really fix that gate because this has happened a couple times already this year. And so we were all pretty pretty irritated at that point, but that was uh, just a taste of a taste of things to come. And that was the night that we were, we, we like to say that we were robbed by a pig because the pig did distract us a bit from, uh, from the back room of the, of the hostel. And then in Colombia, although I will say that is, that was one of the worst experiences I had in Colombia. It's, it's a country that has, uh, a fairly infamous reputation for violence and crime and, and various negative things. But I spent two and a half years there and I had really a nice experience overall. So the, 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 the negatives of the country, uh, unfortunately, are what get it so much attention. And it really does have a lot of redeeming features. In Colombia, I ended up settling in a city called Medellin, which you've probably heard of before. That was Pablo Escobar's hometown. And Medellin is a pretty fascinating place. Medellin, about 15, 20 years ago, was one of the worst places on earth. It was a place that just suffered catastrophic levels of petty, casual violence that had extreme levels of poverty. And it's a city that has, uh, in the, uh, in the time in between, has transformed itself into a quite safe cosmopolitan place. It's, I, I feel like in a lot of ways that, uh, Medellin, Colombia is, is as safe as Denver, Colorado, the, the place that I grew up in. And so when, whenever you see, whenever I see things on the news about these uh, countries and these places in the world that are total hell holes where life is really terrible and where everything just seems so hopeless, a lot of times I think about Medellin because Medellin is a place that, that transformed itself. 
And I'd, I'd encourage you to watch some documentaries about it and things like that, about how that happened. And Colombia sticks out in my mind amongst these 25 different countries that I've, that I've visited and, and some of them that I've spent a lot of time in as having probably the most friendly culture and people. It's a place where it really is easy to make friends. It's a place where it seems like the locals are are curious about you and they want to get to know you and they they want to share their culture with you. And uh, it's also an excellent place to learn Spanish. They have a really nice dialect of Spanish that they speak there and what they're willing to do is they're willing to they're willing to have a little bit of patience with you. It's not like some Spanish countries where the people are they've got a bit of a kind of arrogant entitled attitude, muy presumidos and they are just not willing to put up with your your crappy gringo Spanish. They'll they'll work with you there. And as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I did uh, date a politician's daughter when I was there. And one night, actually the night of our first date, I have a confession to make. The night of our first date, we almost killed somebody together. That's right. Perhaps if we had, I wouldn't be, you know, sitting here recording this nice podcast for you. Well, here's what happened. Here's how we almost killed someone together we had we we had gone we had uh gone out to dinner at a a nice little organic restaurant health healthy food restaurant there in el poblado medellin and then afterwards we went to this big party at a hostel and in this hostel they had a really terrible reggae band playing if if you spend uh, personally, I've grown to hate reggae music because everywhere in Latin America, everywhere in Central America, they play the exact same 10 reggae songs, just just kind of in a rotation. It's like the same 10 at every single bar, restaurant, and little shop. And you just get really, really sick of reggae music. And so at this party, they had a, a particularly bad reggae band playing. And I said, Let's get the hell out of here. And so we went to the roof of this hostel and it was a, it was kind of a tall hostel. It was about five or six stories tall. And we were on top of the roof, enjoying a little bit of fresh air and not having our eardrums assaulted by the reggae band. And I had set our beers down on the barrister, on the, the railing. And we bumped against the railing and our beers fell right off the railing. I heard them roll off the roof. And then just a few moments later, I heard a blood curdling woman scream below. And, uh, I'm, I'm thankful. I, I, I'm tremendously thankful. The, the universe smiled upon us that those beers didn't hit them hit her in the head because I, I don't know what a beer falling from five stories will do to a, uh, will do to a human head, but I, a concussion. It, it may be a concussion. It may be, it may be even 
worse, but we uh, we made the assumption that uh, we walked, we, we, we left the party promptly after that and we didn't see any blood or uh, ambulances or uh, unconscious bodies on the street below. So we, we assumed that we did not, in fact, commit a, uh, a, a murder or a, uh, uh, a grievous assault with the assistance of the beer bottles and the gravity. But if you think about it, if, if you were going to inadvertently murder someone in a South American country, you would want to do it with a politician's daughter as your accomplice. I, I feel like that would just work out a whole lot better than, than without one. So that's my story about the politician's daughter. After some time in Colombia, I, well, actually, ultimately, I was deported from Colombia. It's not because I did anything really illegal or really bad there, but I was deported. And I have another podcast where I tell that story if you're, if you're curious. After that, I returned home for my brother's wedding and hung out a bit back in Denver, Colorado. And then I went to Europe. And for the last couple of years, I've lived in different places around Europe. I lived in, uh, Ber okay, I lived in four places, notably Berlin, Germany, Valencia, Spain, Kiev, Ukraine, and Sofia, Bulgaria. I'll tell you a little bit about some of these places. Uh, Berlin, Germany, I, I found people there to be kind of rude. Traveling the world, you meet all, a lot of really cool Germans uh, who are like these really dynamic, interesting, worldly, sharp, fun people. But the Germans in Germany, I found pretty grumpy. And it is a great city. What Berlin has going for it is that there are so many events going on. Any night of the week, you can find a really cool like networking event going on in in Berlin. So my, my encouragement would be that if you, if you ever go to Berlin, don't, don't go to Berlin to, um, to really, to, to work on your career or to, you know, specifically to like make a lot of money or do stuff with technology because actually the internet is not very good there in Berlin. And I'm not sure if you'd want to go to Berlin to, uh, to pick up chicks. I, I've actually, the, 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 the consensus the consensus on Berlin seems to be that if you're gay, Berlin is the most amazing place in the world for your dating life. <laughs> but if you're straight, your dating life is just going to be an, an exercise in uh, sadomasochism there in Berlin. Either, 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 yes, your your dating life is doomed in Berlin. Either, either figuratively or literally, it's just going to be sadomasochism for for straight people in Berlin. But what Berlin is really great for is you can meet a lot of people because there's so many events going on. If, if, if you really wanted to, you could make a hundred new friends or uh, new acquaintances a week, uh, in Berlin. If you, if you really went crazy with the, the networking and, and hitting the, hitting the events going on. That's what I'll do next time I'm, I'm in Berlin, so it is it is a great city in some ways, but I don't think I'd want to live there again. The next city I lived in was Kiev, Ukraine, which was, even though they are uh, geographically not that far apart from each other, it was a total contrast. 
And Kiev, Ukraine is one of my favorite cities in the world. I've lived there twice now, and I wouldn't be surprised if I ended up living there uh, again at some point in the future. People hear Ukraine and they, if they haven't been there, they think of the war and they think of the revolution and they think of all these uh, terrible news reports that you see about Ukraine inevitably. But Kiev has been almost, uh, at least in the last couple of years, it's been almost completely untouched by any of these things. And it's a, a fairly high-functioning, cosmopolitan, European city. It, it gets quite cold in the wintertime. So if, if you don't like the cold, you wouldn't want to be there in the wintertime. But it's, it's a great cosmopolitan city. And I think in Kiev, I think I met a spy there, actually. One day I was sitting at a cafe with my French roommate in downtown Kiev, and we were chit-chatting, I think about girls, which is what you end up talking about a lot in, in Kiev, especially if you have a, a French, a French roommate. And an American guy approached us just kind of out of the blue at the, at this cafe and, uh, started chatting about, yeah, pretty much the same thing. And we, we asked him, you know, hey, what do you do? What are you doing here in Kiev? And he said that he was a freelance journalist. And we're like, oh, okay, cool. And so we chat, we chit chatted a little more and he seemed like a cool guy. And I'm, you know, always trying to make friends with people in countries, especially if I don't know that many people. So I invited him to join us for sushi. And then we sat down and for uh, several hours over sushi, he regaled us with all these different crazy stories of his adventures and misadventures and close calls as a freelance journalist uh, focusing exclusively on the former Soviet Union Eastern Bloc kind of countries. And he, uh, he spoke Russian fluently and he, uh, yeah, he had worked as a journalist doing, uh, covering all types of, uh, political intrigue and uh, insanity and danger and developments and war and all of that, all of that stuff that goes on in that part of the world that is uh, is so newsworthy. He was there on the ground in a lot of those situations, or, or at least he told us. And he also mentioned to us that his, his ex-wife was a Russian woman who was an FSB agent, which is the Russian uh, state security agency, kind of like their equivalent of the FBI. And I, you know, I was, I was fairly interested by everything this guy told us. And so later on, I went and Google searched him and I was surprised to discover that he had, that as a journalist, he had almost no digital paper trail. He had a, a little Twitter account with a handful of followers and a handful of tweets. And I, I could hardly find very many news stories with his name associated with them. Yet he had told us that he had been a journalist for 10 years covering this really contentious part of the world. And my, uh, my French roommate hung out with the guy some more. And my French roommate was totally convinced that he was a spy for the Russians, which would kind of make sense if his ex-wife was a 
worked for the Russian FSB, yet he was an American journalist, yet he was on the Western side of the conflict. I met this guy while the Civil War was still fairly hot there in the Ukraine. It would, it would make sense that he would be uh, an agent for the Russians. And a lot of people might say, well, that's, that's, that's just absurd that an American would be spying for the Russians in Kiev. And I don't think it's that far of a stretch. If you think about as, as a journalist, uh, a journalist, a freelance journalist transitioning to be a spy is, is similar to a hooker, is similar to a stripper becoming a hooker. It's, it's an easy transition because you are acquiring information all the time. And a lot of times the information you acquire will become more valuable to the other side of a conflict or a political opposition than it will be to a website or a or a magazine that is, you know, paying you uh, maybe a hundred dollars, maybe two hundred dollars, maybe five hundred dollars for a story. Why are you? Why would you sell a key piece of information to a news outlet for that amount of money when you could sell it to a foreign government for ten thousand, fifteen thousand, fifty thousand dollars? It's it's a it's a temptation that that journalists have that are really getting into the into the sticks and really getting into these contentious areas of the world. Interestingly, I ran into the guy about a year later when I was in Kiev. And I've always heard that if there's someone who's a legit drug dealer, if, the, if there's a person that's like a, uh, an actual professional uh, narcotics, uh, narcotics transporter or you know a real a real high high-end drug dealer someone who's not an amateur I've heard that they will never take a selfie with you that they will avoid as much as possible taking photos with random people and so I was hanging out with this guy that I suspected was a spy in a bar in Kiev and we were you know just having a cheeky cheeky conversation as you do catching up and I grabbed a couple of friendly girls and uh, shoved my cell phone into the hand of a, of some stranger. And I said, you know, Hey, take a, take a photo with us, you know, as, as people do when they're hanging out, socializing at bars. And I noticed the guy, he slinked right out of the photo. He did not want to, uh, he did not want to be caught up in a bunch of photos that would be picked up by a uh, counterintelligence agency that was, that was, uh, that was fishing through, fishing through Facebook for, for possible connections. But I really, I really don't know. I, I really can't say if I've, if, if he was a spy or not. Moving on. And I'll try to pick up the pace on these, on these descriptions. I also lived in Valencia, Spain. And when you hear, especially tourists or you hear people talk about Spain, invariably you hear them praising Barcelona and about how Barcelona is the, greatest cosmopolitan city in the world. And Barcelona is a great cosmopolitan city with amazing things to see and do and so much iconic architecture. But Barcelona is very expensive. You you pay for all that all that cosmopolitan stuff to see and do there. And I found I lived in Barcelona for about for about two weeks and it was just too expensive. And so I headed south to Valencia. And Valencia has all of those great things that Barcelona is known for, 
but the cost of living there is about one third of what it is in Barcelona. It has this beautiful, awesome beach. It has amazing discos and nightlife. It has that uh, lovely, warm, uh, southern Spain weather. I, well, I guess Barcelona is considered northern Spain. So the weather is, the weather, the, the climate is a, is a bit hotter further south. It has all sorts of, uh, it has all sorts of things to do. It has this awesome, uh, science park where you can go and see all sorts of, all sorts of cool things. That, that was a really great place. And I speak Spanish, which is, of course, the language they speak there, whereas they speak Catalan in Barcelona. And now I live in Sofia, Bulgaria. And Sofia, Bulgaria is one of those countries that you might say to yourself, where, where is that? You might be thinking on the map. You're like, Bulgaria, I, I just can't uh, pick that out on a map if I had to. And Bulgaria is one of these uh, European countries that's pretty far north. And it's really kind of on the edge of Asia, Asia Minor, as they call it, and Europe. So it's it's an interesting place. It's, it's a country that's kind of been at the crossroads. And it's also a country with a fairly ancient heritage. They say, uh, credible archaeologists say, that there were people living here in uh, 3000 BC, and possibly later than that, and that they were the uh, genetically the same people that are that are here also. So it's it's interesting to uh, immerse yourself in a culture that goes back uh, blood and soil about 6,000 years. And Sofia, Bulgaria, it's, it's not the most, uh, it's not the most glamorous city. What it is, part of the reason I've picked to live here is that it's a really excellent value. It's, it's a really excellent value. The cost of living is about the same as what I remember it being in Medellin, Colombia. It's a little bit higher than in Kiev, Ukraine. Yet the infrastructure and the general kind of functionality of society here is very, High the uh, the infrastructure the the quality of life here is is actually quite comparable to in my native Denver Colorado but the cost of living is probably about one fifth of what of what it is in in Denver Colorado maybe maybe even lower because I know that the cost of living has risen sharply in in recent years in Denver. So it's it's a really excellent value and it's just a place where you can have a, a decent life. Although I don't I don't predict living here forever. I don't want to get too complacent. I don't want to get too comfortable. And travel uh, especially the way I've done it as a digital nomad is is really great because it splits your life up into really distinct chapters. And when people live in a single city, a single neighborhood, a single house for years and years and decades and decades, their, their, uh, their impetus for personal transformation and for, um, changing things about them, it's, it, it's not quite so 
visceral. And I can look back at my life and I can look at different attitudes and habits and mindsets that I have that were attached to a geographic place and time in my past. And then I moved on to new places and my mindset changed. And I will, uh, I've had times where there was things that I knew that I needed to change and there was things that I needed to try and there was risks that I wanted to take. And I had to be in a new geographic space to do those things. And as I moved on to a new place, I could, I could compartmentalize that into, into chapters. And I was, Recently, I've read this book about how uh, the invention of literature has been kind of like a guiding force in the evolution of the human mind and how in, in books, in books, books are broken up into chapters. They're broken up into these distinct, these distinct uh, modules of content. And when you live in different places, what it does is it breaks your life up into these distinct Modules. I, I I don't know. It's I, I think it's it's been really helpful for my personal development. So as you can imagine, I also value other cultures. And uh, for example, you know, when I was there in Latin America, I made an effort to learn to speak Spanish fluently, uh, along with learning to salsa dance. And my preference is to is to experience other cultures in those cultures. I, in the future, I hope to visit Russia, Africa, and Asia. I, I kind of reject, while I value other cultures, I reject this politically correct idea of multiculturalism or this idea of, you know, let's take all the cultures and let's mix them all together. I, I love the distinctness of cultures and I, I think it's fairly absurd in, uh, for example, in Germany, where Germans are all ashamed of, of, of being German. That, that, that I, I, I can't get behind. And as, as I've, as I've traveled, and again, it's been five years now, so I've kind of seen how things have changed, how things are changing gradually. And there is a distinct Americanization of world cultures. There's a distinct trend towards uh, a homogeneity of world cultures there because of because of the internet and because of globalism because of the 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 very technologies that right now are allowing for my voice and my thoughts and my feelings to travel to you through you know TCIP packets because of these very technologies the the uh, most sexy culture on the on the world, the most sexy culture in the world, which is American pop culture, which which I have mixed feelings about, that culture is uh, sublimating all of the other cultures in the world. And compared, and, and I can, I can notice this even over the course of the five years that I've been traveling, that different, uh, American things and American attitudes and American kinds of behaviors I see in, 
I see people doing and people being consumed with them in places so far removed from America. And you'll hear, you'll hear a lot of times about how, you'll, okay, you'll hear older people talking about how they are happy that they got to see and experience life before the internet because the internet is pretty radically transformed almost almost all aspects of life there's a couple aspects it hasn't like putting on your socks has not has not been changed by smartphone apps or or anything like that putting on your socks is about the same but almost everything else has has changed quite a bit and you'll hear old people say you know is it was nice to have experienced the world before the internet. I like the internet, but it was nice to have seen the difference in between that. And similarly, I see this trend towards a, a homogenous world culture, towards a world culture that has kind of been bastardized by American pop culture. And I am thankful that I have experienced distinct cultures that are uh, that are relatively untouched by American pop culture because in the future that is not going to be the case. In the future, the digital nomads in 10 years or 15 years that get on an airplane and travel for 10 hours on an airplane, crossing continents and crossing time zones, they're going to get off the airplane in a foreign country and they're going to get their passport st- passport stamped. And they're going to enter a country where the the landscapes and the architecture and the accents are different, but the culture and the attitudes and the people are the same as they were back home. And and I feel like that's kind of a loss from the world. And it's and it's it's something unfortunate, but I feel like it's a really irreversible trajectory that the world is on. And so I would urge you if you want to experience these uh, species of cultures that are going extinct because they're being subliminated by a uh, by a pop by a pop culture that's just so much more seductive if you want to experience that don't don't wait do it now and I think about recently we were uh, we were talking with uh, we, we met this this girl at a language exchange a, a relatively young, Bulgarian girl. And in the language exchange, she mentioned that she enjoyed reading Dostoevsky and also that she liked twerking. And twerking is this awful uh, American hip hop dance. And I, I thought that was a, 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 an odd fusion of, of interests. And I would say if, if you were in America and you were talking to young girls, in any major cosmopolitan city in America, you'd meet a lot of young girls who knew all about twerking. And perhaps they'd admit that they that they did twerking from, from time to time, but you really wouldn't meet very many girls that were also into reading Dostoevsky. But at this point in uh, history where there are this, uh, there's this point of kind of where you can imagine one of these points where two oceans meets together. And that's kind of what's happening right now in the world. You can encounter these places where there's this American pop culture that's also flowing together with 
older cultures. And it creates kind of these curious interactions where, yeah, you'll talk with someone about uh, twerking and Dostoevsky. And if, if that's the kind of thing that you'd like to experience, again, you're not going to be able to experience it for long. And I'd encourage you to uh, start shopping for flights now as opposed to later. Okay, my next value is not twerking. I, I can't say that I'm great at twerking, but I do enjoy dancing. I do value dancing. And in Colombia, it is such a part of the culture. I would say if you were going to say what were the things that Colombians really value, dancing is 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 important to them. It's a part of almost almost any social event you're going to do. If you go to a barbecue at a friend's house, there's going to be some dancing going on. Almost almost any time that people are going to be relaxing and listening to music, there's going to be some dancing going on. So if you want to integrate it all into that culture, you got to pick up some dancing skills. And I was your most stereotypically terrible gringo on the dance floor when I arrived there, but I put in some effort and I got some lessons with a private instructor and I ended up leaving the country actually a pretty decent dancer. When I was younger, I was also into dancing, but I was into uh, break dancing and hip hop, but I, I never got all that good at it. And I would say that I got into breakdancing and hip hop type styles because I was looking for something that would provide like a bit of social proof. So now what I, what I do for fun is I do salsa, bachata, and kazumba. You're probably familiar with salsa. Almost everybody has heard of salsa or tried salsa before, but I'd actually, if you're at all curious about this, I'd encourage you to look into bachata and kazomba as well. These are two styles where you dance a little bit slower and you do it in a bit more of a rhythmical and intimate way. With salsa, there's a lot of like big, fast movements that go on, which can be really difficult. Whereas bachata and kazomba are smaller, are, are much smaller movements. And I actually find that bachata and kazomba are most are more social kinds of dance. With salsa, a lot of times your bodies are moving so quickly and in these big movements that you really can't hold much of a conversation with the other person. Whereas dancing, dancing bachata and kazomba, your your heads are quite are, are your your not your necks are fairly kind of wrapped around each other and you're uh practically sticking your tongue down their ear while you're dancing. So you can you can actually chat with someone and have a bit of a an interaction. I really highly recommend Latin dancing or uh, kazomba. I'm not sure if kazomba technically gets categorized as Latin dancing. I recommend these styles to to IT guys, to to guys that are geeks that spend way too much time on computers. Uh, this is really a great hobby for you. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why. If you do work or you spend, your your pursuits demand that you spend a lot of time on the computer, inevitably over time, your social skills 
and your motor skills are going to atrophy because the the computer just doesn't demand your social skills or your motor skills very much. And salsa dancing is a good exercise for these things. You can find salsa or Latin clubs in pretty much any city in the world. You're not going to have much much trouble and it's it's a cheap it's a cheap hobby. The classes for it don't cost very much even if you're even if you're in North America and if you're anywhere else in the world they're they're extremely affordable. You'll make friends doing it and also maybe maybe you're kind of like me some I'll see these news reports about like these ghastly uh, terrorist attacks and these uh, violent episodes that happen randomly in nightclubs and discos. And that makes me kind of want to avoid nightclubs and discos. I, I know the chances are, are not very high that it's going to happen at the nightclub or disco that you're at. But if you're avoiding big, crazy discos uh, in your nightlife, you're going to avoid some of these acts of egregious violence that you see on the news sometimes. And I've been salsa dancing quite frequently for several years now, and I've never seen a fight or any violence or anything bad ever go down at a salsa club. So it seems like all around like a just a really win-win as a hobby. I'd, I'd really encourage you to get into it. Moving on, the next value I have is uncomfortableness. So I, I cherish discomfort because I think that life is too comfortable with all of our technology and with all of the uh, trappings of modernity. We have the option, if we want, of just insulating ourselves in perpetual comfort. And so I, I look for things that I can do to be uncomfortable, to uh, you know, practice a little bit more stoicism. So two things that I'd encourage you to look at for discomfort are cold showers. And you've probably heard of cold showers before. I do them a little bit differently than how everybody else does them. What I do is I start my showers cold. I wake up in the morning and I still have the, you know, uh, the wisps of cobwebs in my eyes, right? I'm still only half awake and I'll trudge to the bathroom and I'll turn on the light in the bathroom and I'll look up at the shower head with that little pink thing dangling from it. And I'll think about the cold water and I'll look up and I'll say, do your worst, you bastard. And then I'll turn on the cold water and cold water will wash over my body and I go into just a bit of a state of thermogenic shock. And then what I'll do is I'll grab my toothbrush and I'll start vigorously brushing my teeth because I find that it kind of takes my mind away from the benign aqueous torture that I'm subjecting myself to. And the first 30 seconds or so will just be pure hell. But then after that, your uh, your uh, the 
hormones that the the stress hormones that your body is is pumping they kind of reach a normalization level where your body kind of gets used to it and you start uh, you, you stop with your shivering so much and actually you start feeling really cool and you start feeling more energetic and it does make you really uncomfortable but it's something it's a nice energetic thing to do to wake yourself up in the morning and it has a lot of good uh, long-term benefits. It promotes something called thermogenesis, which is that it promotes a little bit of uh, neuroplasticity. It it promotes new uh, brain cells growing, and it helps to kind of inoculate your body against a stress response. Another, another thing that I like to do for discomfort is fasting. So the showering, that's very short term. That's like a lot of discomfort and that's like a, a extremely potent dose of discomfort in about 90 seconds to two minutes. Where I always scream, I scream just a little bit. I yelp just a little bit. And that's, that's, and and a lot of times what i'll do i'll you know i'll be brushing my teeth and i'll 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 bite down i'll bite down on my toothbrush so that i don't scream too yet too loud kind of like you know uh you know when you see the civil war movies and they're they're sawing the guy's leg off, and so they put a piece of wood in his mouth. So on the other end of discomfort, I recommend fasting. And there's a couple of different, there's, okay, there's three different ways to do fasting that I'll describe. And the first way is that you do what's called an intermittent fast, which means that you try to concentrate your eating to an eight hour period every day. You try to eat all your meals within eight hours and then you go 16 hours with no meal. And what this does is it puts your body into a state where your body gets used to burning off all the energy that you're feeding it in a given day. It's called intermittent fasting or People say uh, ketosis, ketogenic diet, that sort of thing. I'm not the world's foremost expert on it, but I recommend you look into this. It makes you a little bit uncomfortable throughout the day, but long-term, it really is great for your health and it saves you a bit of time and money too because you eliminate at least one meal from your day, every day. The second form of fasting that I like to do, so I do that one probably about five or six days a week, so so almost all the time. The second kind of fasting is a 24-hour fast. So what you do with this, importantly, you have uh, lunch, you have a large, healthy lunch, a lot of fats in your system, and then you just skip dinner and you don't eat until the next day's lunch. So you do 24 hours, but it's so much easier to do if you do it from lunch to lunch as opposed to starting in the morning or starting in the evening and then going to the evening the next day because you're spending you know about half the fast or so sleeping it it makes it a whole lot easier and it's a good idea to do those about once a month and then also you want to a couple times a year do 
like a three-day fast or or maybe just a two-day fast because for some people a three-day fast may be a little bit a little bit too difficult is you do a three-day fast and what's interesting is that your first day you'll be pretty uncomfortable and then your second day the discomfort will kind of actually go away because your body will adapt to it a bit and doing these three-day fasts it prompts something called autophagy which is kind of like it's kind of like sending a, a hit squad into the nursing home to to come up with a really vulgar <laughs> analogy what it's what it's doing is it prompts your body to kill off all of the decrepit old cells that are in it or or many of the decrepit old cells that are uh, that are just kind of hanging around your bodily system so that instead your bodily systems your immune system your nervous system etc these systems are running off of fresh new, vigorous cells which is which is pretty great right and it's one of these things that increasingly research is finding that it's just a really good practice in fact a lot of the studies that i've looked at recently surrounding fasting are indicating that what you can do is you can use like some really sophisticated expensive anti-aging supplements or you can fast and that actually fasting has a lot of the same benefits that using these sophisticated, expensive anti-aging supplements have. And so in my case, as a person that values discomfort, as a person that is trying to remain stoic in this world of excessive comfort that is trying to seduce me every moment and turn me into a, a, a weakling, I, I find fasting to be a pretty good option. I recommend you try it. And I'll mention one of my favorite one of my favorite quotes is from one of my favorite presidents which is JFK and he had his speech where he was saying that we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do other things not because they're easy but because they're hard and I, I always found that to be tremendously inspirational and that that speech he, he gave that speech about 10 years before they went to the moon. And it was quite, it was quite remarkable. And at that point, the space exploration that had been accomplished, there'd actually, the, the space exploration accomplishments were quite small at that point. And it would have been really difficult to predict at that point in history when he gave that speech that we were going to make it all the way to the moon. And I find it really amazing that he went out there and he set this extremely ambitious goal for the nation. And then we went about doing it. I, I find that to be really inspirational. And I love the fact that he said, we're going to do this almost kind of as an arbitrary challenge. We're going to do this almost kind of just as a thing to make us better as a people and as a country. We're going to pick just a fantastically ambitious goal and we're going to go for it and this particular uh, historical accomplishment is quite close to my own heart because my grandfather was a lead engineer at NASA throughout the 1960s and the 1970s and he was actually one of those one of those main guys in there on the ground who was responsible for this 
extremely momentous uh, human accomplishment of uh, of of planting of planting uh, footprints on the moon. And so I, so I hold that quite close. I, I know there's a lot of people out there that believe that we don't go, that we didn't actually go to the moon. They think it was all uh, Stanley Kubrick and films that were faked. And at some point in the future, I'm actually going to analyze that conspiracy theory because there's some interesting things about it. I think ultimately it's it's incorrect and there's some good reasons to believe that. But I have I have held in my own hands the mission manual for the Apollo spacecraft, and it is a giant book. It is one of the thickest, most uh, most detailed manuals for a mechanical device that I've that I've ever held in my life, really. And I've also, in my own hands, I've also looked through page I've looked through hundreds of pages from dozens and dozens of notebooks that my grandfather kept where he plotted out by hand the mathematics so that they could make it to the to the moon and back and it so, so I have a I have a, an aesthetic experience of this uh, of this accomplishment and that's why I hold that that particular value closely Moving on, another value of mine is reading. I really love reading books. I, I've loved reading books for as long as I can remember. And my favorite book is a novel called Memoir from Ant Proof Case. And this was a book that I read when I was in the middle of my teenage years. And then I read it again recently. And it was this novel about this old American guy who lives in Brazil. And he's this old American guy who has lived the most amazing life. He's been a fighter pilot, a billionaire, a murderer. He's been in an insane asylum. He's had this remarkable life. And he ends up this old American guy sitting on a bench in Brazil recounting all these amazing uh, adventures, misadventures, and romances. And this book is... One of the, it's the most funny book you'll ever read. This book just has the most charming prose in it. It, it really is one of those books that makes you laugh out loud. It, it, it's one of these books that it's, uh, you, you won't forget this book. At least I didn't. And I read it when I was, again, 14 or 15 years old. And then I read it again a couple of years ago. And I found how my own story was, was kind of, had, had been, uh, guided somewhat by this, this, this character in this book. So that's probably my favorite book. I also really liked Anne Rhine's books. Uh, Atlas Shrugged was, was an, an amazing book. It takes so long to read. It's, 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 it's an effort. It's an effort to read that book. It's not an easy book to read, but it's, it's worth it. And I think, I think I'll read it again here. I, okay, as far as novels, I really enjoy Graham Hancock's novels. This is an author who is really interested in history, and he writes these really amazing novels of historical fiction, where he takes these historical events that you've heard about, and he just captures the the raw human emotion and characters and violence that 
characterize history in a enrapturing way. His his novels, I always read them in in very very quickly because they're they're such page turners. So I like Graham Hancock's novels. Moving back to uh, nonfiction, okay. I recently finished Nassim Taleb's Anti-Fragile. That was a fascinating book. That is a book that contains the the wisdom that you find in that book is tantamount to the wisdom that you will find in some libraries. That is such a dense manifesto of information. And what I loved about that book if you've probably heard of it before, but what it is, is it's kind of like a theory of everything risk philosophy. You may have heard of the theory of everything, or people even give it the acronym T-O-E. And this is this, uh, this is this idea that there's, that there should be a theory of physics that scales from the subatomic quantum level to the galactic universal level. And that's what, that's what anti-fragile is for risk. It's this, um, it's this theory that he has on risk that scales from the very, very small, which is like our biology and, uh, you know, microorganisms that scales from that level all the way to governments and, uh, tectonic events going on. It's it's really fascinating. It's really difficult to read. I had to take a lot of smart drugs to get through that book because it is it is dense. Some other nonfiction books I liked. There's a book on health that really doesn't get the exposure that it that it deserves. Um, you rarely hear about this book, but it just contains so much interesting information. It was called The Tao of Health, Sex, and Longevity. And it was a book where they had Taoist practitioners. There was some, uh, there's an American guy who was a, a, who had uh, steeped himself in different schools of Taoism and was a hardcore practitioner of Taoism. And then what he did was he tried to find the connections between Taoism and science. And he tried to find the aspects of Taoism that are relevant, intelligent practices for people that want to maximize their health in a natural way. And this book was maybe towards the end of the book, it got a little bit woo-woo. But the, I'd say the first 75% of the book was really excellent, like interesting practices, again, for health, sex, and Longevity. I enjoyed that one. Another nonfiction book that was great was Pitch Anything by Oren Klaff. This was a book on sales psychology, which perhaps you're thinking, oh God, sales psychology. What a, what a beat to death subject. Uh, I already, I already know enough about that. But this book had some really novel ideas about sales psychology. And in it, what they were doing was they were kind of connecting the ideas of sales psychology to ideas of persuasion and seduction and neuroscience. And the guy that wrote it has really excellent credentials as a deal maker and a persuader. And it was a really short book too. You could sit down and you could read it in about uh, an afternoon or two or three, and you'll be 
you'll be so much more enlightened about being just a bit more persuasive with people. Some other books that have made an impact on me were Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Like, like a lot of people, that's, that's a book that it's, it, it sets your life on a, on a, on a trajectory. If, if you like your life the way it is and you haven't read Think and Grow Rich, don't read Think and Grow Rich. But if you would like, if you think your life could be a whole lot better and you don't mind the old you dying a little bit and a new you rising out of the uh, rising, rising up, then read Think and Grow Rich. Some other books, I really liked Waking Up by Sam Harris. This was a book about kind of the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, spirituality, and neuroscience. I also recently, I really enjoyed Headstrong by Dave Asprey. This is a book that in, I think it's about 300 or 400 pages, and it really excellently captures the state of the art of biohacking, best tools and practices. If you've stumbled upon biohacking and you're like, this is interesting, but I'm confused by this abundance of information, then you should check out Headstrong because that that book encapsulates the best practices really well. And then finally, I will mention the Holy Bible. I When I was younger, I read most of the Holy Bible. I can't say that I read all of it. Some of those, some of those books in the Old Testament are just, they're so dry. But I read all of the, all of the relevant parts of the Holy Bible and it is something that has, has made an impact on me. I'll move on to my next value, which is mindfulness. Or, uh, you know, people think of meditation. And I have experimented with many of the different types of meditation. I've uh, experimented with also different devices for meditation. There's a device called the M-Wave. And what it does is it monitors your heart rate variability. It monitors kind of like the state that your autonomic nervous system is in. And what it does with that is it gives you instantaneous, accurate feedback on the effectiveness of your meditation. And there's a lot of people that will hear about meditation. They'll hear, oh, meditation is important. You should do meditation. Meditation has all these benefits, blah, 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 blah. But they'll be a little bit resistant to it because they're not sure if they're doing meditation correctly. And there is a right way and a wrong way to do meditation. And if you do it the correct way, you're gonna get a lot more benefits out of it a whole lot sooner as opposed to you know being like the monk that needs to practice meditation for 40 years before they are doing it in a really beneficial way and the m wave is is a short way is a shortcut to that so i'm thankful that i i'm thankful that i use that and i've also experimented with different brain training technologies that work on your working memory and this helped me quite a bit because when i was younger i tried to learn meditation. I heard about how meditation was great. Actually, what I heard about was I heard about meditation and self-hypnosis. And so I downloaded some self-hypnosis tracks, and then I went and listened to these self-hypnosis tracks, and I could just not settle my mind down. I had that monkey mind that would just would not shut up enough for me to actually experience any benefit from these hypnosis tracks. I could not be hypnotized. I'd, I'd love for someone to try to hypnotize me and see if they could do it. But at least when I tried then, my mind was just way too loud. 
And then I also tried meditation and it was just an excruciating experience because my mind was just too active. I was just way too self-critical of my failure to be good at it. But then what I did was I started using this technology called Dual NBAC. And I spoke with a very wise guy. I spoke with this guy named Mark Ashton Smith, who's a cognitive psychiatrist who has studied this sort of thing really extensively in university environments. And I had the privilege of being able to kind of pick his brain for about two hours on this subject. And then I took my dual end back training really seriously. And what it did was it, it fundamentally altered my personality and it changed my level of uh, control that I had over my internal dialogue to where I could learn to meditate without having this constant voice in my mind telling me that I was screwing up, that I was doing it badly, that I was a terrible person, etc., etc. I'm sure you're familiar with that voice. And with the help of dual and back software and a meditation practice, I've managed to, to quiet it. And meditation and mindfulness, I really do recommend it to, to everyone. After, after you've, after you've done mindfulness and meditation for several years, what you realize is that in the past, your, your thoughts were kind of like a squadron of squabbling, argumentative chickens fighting with each other over, over crumbs. And after years of a meditation practice, your thoughts transform into kind of like a, phalanx of Roman legionnaires. You know when you see in the movies when the Roman soldiers are going to fight someone and they put their shields together so that they're stronger together and they're pushing and fighting in the same direction? That's what meditation transforms your disorganized storm of thoughts into. I'd like to talk about my political values a little bit because, as I said at the outset, I think me and you can learn more from each other if we have values in common. So if we don't have our political values in common, maybe you should look for a biohacker that, that does have those things in common with you. So I'm a bit more conservative. I'm on the right side of that spectrum. I voted Republican in the last U.S. election, but don't don't get the don't get the wrong idea. I'm one of those people that, for the longest time, I hated Republicans. I hated George W. Bush, and for the most part, I still hate politicians that uh, that that are quote unquote conservative politicians. I think they've they've utterly failed. They they couldn't even conserve the women's restroom in the United States. I'm I'm really disappointed in the most part in conservative. The they couldn't even cons have you heard about this? No. In okay, no. in the United States, they passed a law that said that if you want to identify as a woman, if you're a man but you wear a dress and makeup and you say you're a woman, then you can legally use the women's restroom. Everywhere, with no problem. You can even you can even go into like a public swimming pool, and you can go into the women's changing room where the women are putting on their bikinis in a public swimming pool, and you can say I'm a man, and you don't have to prove, or you can say I'm a woman, even though 
even though you have something dangling in between your legs. But just because you say, I'm a woman, you get to go into the woman's restroom and you can do whatever perverted thing you want to do in there. And it's it's a law now. Have you tried it? Uh, I don't know. I'm thinking about it. Maybe when I go back. It's it's the most it's it's the it's the most it's the most absurd thing. So I, I have I have great enmity for what has been the what has been the conservative establishment in the United States. They are typified by just their their utter coward cowardliness and lack of testicular fortitude in standing up for Western civilization. So I fall into the camp of being one of these new right dissident right type people, politically speaking. And about a year ago, I was in, I was living in Kiev and I appeared on television for about 90 minutes in Kiev. And I did something that was really fun that was an interesting experience, which is that I was in a political debate and I was representing Donald Trump as a candidate for president of the United States. And there was another gentleman there who was representing Hillary Clinton for president of the United States. And actually he had, he had met Hillary Clinton and me and him on television debated back and forth about why we thought our candidate should be president. And you likely remember back in 2016, it was extremely contentious election. And I remember walking into the venue where we were having the debate. And I remember having just in the back of my mind a little bit of fear that maybe someone would physically assault me for representing Donald Trump. And luckily nobody did. Uh, Ukrainians are very civilized people and the other expats that were there to see the debate were, were pretty, were pretty, uh, respectful overall. And it was a really fun experience. And I think that, uh, I think that ultimately I was vindicated in my support of him. And here's why during the debate, they asked me, what was the number one thing that I thought made Donald Trump most attractive as a candidate? And the number one reason why I thought people should vote for him. What? He's blonde. He's blonde. He's blonde. No. No, it wasn't that. He looks like a clown. <laughs> uh, it wasn't that. Keep, gu- keep guessing. Um, what I told... He's pale. He's pale as hell. No, he's orange. Or he was orange. He's getting pale now. He's he's been he's been changing. He's been changing colors somehow. It's interesting. Okay, he's orange. When when I was when I was a little baby, my mom fed me. My mom fed me all those all those sweet potatoes. I started turning orange, so, so perhaps Donald Trump has been removing the sweet potatoes from his diet. <laughs> He's orange. The reason I gave the audience why they should vote for him was his tax plan was an economic, common sense tax plan to lower taxes on everybody. And my sentiment, my thought was that the government, no matter what, no matter who gets elected in, the government is going to 
offend you egregiously. The government is generally going to be uh, ineffective and wasteful of your money. So what makes the most sense is just to make sure that the government is getting as little of your money as possible because the, the less money that the government has, the less the government can go around the world and go around your country causing problems and then pretending to fix those problems, but not really fixing those problems. And I asked the people in the audience there in Kiev, I said, don't, don't you deserve to spend your money the way you think, as opposed to having the government steal your money uh, and take it and use it on things that really don't do you very much good? That's, that's the number one reason that I can come up with to vote for Trump. And in, it's been, I think, just the past month I was vindicated in that because he passed a tax plan lowering taxes on the vast majority of people and companies, and it's been excellent for the economy of the United States. And politics is so complicated, and culture is so complicated, but I feel like the underlying forces are all economic. And I see that he has pushed our country in a important step of just having a bit more economic sanity going on. And so that's, that's why I think supporting him was a pretty, a pretty good idea. And for everyone that dislikes him, I would encourage you to just look at what the economy in the United States does over the course of the next couple of years. I'll mention this guy again that I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast. His name was Richard Hoagland. And he is a, I think he was a scientist originally. He's an author and a researcher. And he has this really fascinating uh, idea of human history. And his idea of human history, I'm going to kind of call Atlantis on steroids. And you have probably, I'm sure you've heard of this idea of an antediluvian civilization that before there was the, uh, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Olmecs, before there was the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Sumerians, before all of these ancient civilizations, there was some type of progenitor civilization that was like a high, a higher technology civilization that went around the world and built pyramids and built these different megalithic structures that we see. And they passed on a bit of their wisdom about culture and architecture and things that provided a, a seed, things that watered the seed of civilization for these ancient cultures to flourish and grow and eventually grow into Greek civilization that eventually grew into Roman civilization, which eventually grew into Christendom, which eventually has grown into modernity. And this guy, uh, Richard Hoagland, he has all these interesting theories and ideas and, and some evidence uh, surrounding the antediluvian civilization, but he takes it a step further that what he believes is he believes that there was, he believes that the antediluvian civilization was the child of an even greater civilization. And the theory ultimately that he has is that the human race started out on the planet Mars and that there was a civilization of human beings that colonized a lot of the solar system 
that colonized the moon, that colonized uh, different uh, moons of other planets like Iapetus, and that this civilization uh, used something that's called torsion field technology. This is a theory of physics. It's, it's pretty interesting. You might want to check this out if you want to go down a, a bit of a wormhole on the internet for a couple of hours. That this civilization used this, used this remarkable type, type of physics to build all of these megalithic structures around the solar system. And there's actually some, some interesting photographic evidence for this. Go, go and look this up, make your own decision. But there's, there's kind of some photographic evidence for this idea of an ancient civilization that proliferated the entire solar system. And then what happened was there was a, a civil war within this human civilization, which makes sense because humans have lots of civil wars now. So it would make sense that we would have them in the past also, that there was a civil war and that the civilization destroyed itself. And actually, there's some evidence to be found for this in the analysis of uh, Mars rocks. When, when they analyze, when they analyze the surface of Mars, they find a lot of a particular type of uh, nuclear isotope that only results from nuclear explosions. There, as you know, nuclear explosions, they, they irradiate the environment around it with all of these telltale, very distinctive molecular atomic chemical signs that there was a extremely violent nuclear event that went on. And they've actually found some, some interesting, some puzzling, uncanny evidence for this on the planet Mars. And so it really, it really makes you wonder. However, ultimately, I'm a bit skeptical of this, of this world view. And here's why. So there was this guy, Richard Hoagland, and I was, I, I spent several hours looking at his content and learning about this, this theory of history. But as I followed this guy some more, I, I, I found out that this guy was a real bleeding heart liberal, that he was a real hardcore progressive liberal. And there's a, there's a particular delusion of the liberal mind. There's a, there's a particular, um, unreality that liberals, that people on the left side of the spectrum embrace and that they just cannot let go of. And this delusion is kind of this idea of a, of a fall from grace from humanity. They have this idea of humanity that humanity, that, that human beings on their own without uh, hierarchical systems around them and without organizational forces and incentives around them, that human beings are going to be like this angelic moral agents. I, I think perhaps this is maybe a little bit of a... Uh, of a cultural DNA leftover of imagining like human beings in the Garden of Eden and these innocent, uncivilized, native, savage human beings that they had no technology, they had no rules, they had no hierarchy, they were just existing in an anarchic state, but they were utterly moral and upright and innocent and good because they didn't have any of these systems around them guiding their behavior. And that over time, as systems of 
human control and hierarchy have evolved that we have devolved as human beings. And what people like Richard Hoagland are, are saying is they're saying that we think that at some point, human beings, we were like this, we were these, these godlike, benevolent, uh, masters of the solar system. And that over time, we devolved and we devolved and we devolved until we were just these, uh, you know, cavemen who were herding goats around Sumeria 5,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago or however long ago. And, I think, I believe there's compelling evidence that this is just a delusional view of human nature. And I think that human beings, because we are animals and because we have these impulses and we're mostly driven by our biological impulses, that I think that it is a profoundly good thing that we have systems of hierarchy and systems of organization and systems of control, systems of morality that, that, um, that push us into being a, a higher order of being and into pursuing better things, pursuing a more long-term vision of life. And again, that's, that's what my values are. And that's what, that's kind of my view of humanity. And so if, so if your view is, uh, quite different, if, if you subscribe more to that liberal view, hey, you should go and check out this Richard Hoagling guy. Cause he does, he does have kind of some interesting ideas. But if, if, if you, are a bit more of kind of a realist and a pragmatist, and you prefer to be able to take a look at all of the ugliness and all the animalisticness and all the brutality of human nature from a from a clear vantage point, then that's kind of that's that's the kind of thing that that I'm about. As a final value, I want to talk about transhumanism. You may have heard this before. And so transhumanists are people who want to overcome the bane of non-voluntary death. We think that death should be a decision as opposed to an inevitability. And we are very motivated, very organized, and we are pretty well funded in our endeavor to rid the world of non-voluntary death to give people an option. And we're not really sure what this is going to look like in, in its final product. Is it going to be a thing where we're all cyborgs and we are all, uh, have our biology intertwined with, um, with mechanics like the Borg from Star Trek? No, I don't think we're looking for the, looking exactly for that. Is it going to be a thing where our, consciousness somehow escapes into cyberspace where it can exist uh, for as long as cyberspace exists and we can you know forever just play in a digital playground of pleasure no I, I don't think that's really what we're looking for either we're we're looking for a world that we can kind of temper some of the excesses and the irrationality of human nature with technology. And a, a, a lot of times um, transhumanists are criticized because we're, we embrace the idea of immortality. And, a lot, and, and for some reason, a lot of people find immortality to be a, a negative a negative concept. They, they don't like the idea of immortality. They take immortality as being a uh, fundamentally selfish 
idea. But there's what's called there's what's called the transhumanist wager, and the transhumanist wager is kind of the philosophical outlook that typifies why transhumanists do what they do. And and I'll read it to you. Here's the transhumanist wager. The wager is the most logical conclusion to arrive at for any sensible human being. We love life, and therefore we want to live as long as possible. We desire to be immortal. It's impossible to know if we're going to be immortal once we die. To do nothing doesn't help our odds of attaining immortality. Since it seems evident that we're going to die someday and possibly cease to exist. To attempt something scientifically constructive towards ensuring immortality beforehand is the most logical solution. That's the transhumanist wager. That's kind of one of the things that I live by. And recently you've heard kind of some criticism of transhumanist ideas in this kind of form. You hear people saying that you know, we're developing artificial intelligence technology too quickly. And that with our artificial intelligence technology, that we are summoning the demon. That as we develop artificial technology, technology that's going to uh, aid us in our quest for immortality, that we're going to invent kind of like these digital gods and that these digital gods will be superior to us and that they'll wipe us out. And I make, I'll make the case here that that's actually a risk that's worth taking. Because if you look at, if you look at the irrationality and you look at the biases and you look at the emotionality and the outgroup preferences of human beings organized in the irresponsibility of bureaucratic governments, you take all of that, all of that irrationality all that irrationality multiplied by these government, by giant governments that are growing, that are vampirically uh, sucking liberty out of the planet. You take all of that human irrationality, you multiply it by fiat banking, you multiply it by this infinite growth economic paradigm that we're in, and then you give nukes. You give thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons to all of these irrational actors. This is a world on the course. This is a world that's on a trajectory to become a radioactive, lifeless, dusty ball spinning through space. I, I see that as, as fairly inevitable. When you take several, when you take hundreds of thousands of nuclear weapons times the inherent evil and irresponsibility of government times 7 billion people. I see that as inevitable. And I think that in the future, if we can have artificial intelligence that's making a lot of our decisions as societies and as governments, that's going to be so much more rational than uh, the organized irrationality and disresponsibility of, of governments. Those are my values. I hope you found them interesting. I realize that this podcast has gotten a bit long in the tooth. I've gotten, I, I'm a bit long-winded, but I hope you found these things interesting. If you've listened all the way to the end of this podcast, 
I'm, I'm impressed. And actually, it would be cool if you uh, sent me like a tweet or an email, or maybe you could just leave a comment below this podcast, wherever you're listening to it, and say, hey man, I listened to your entire long podcast and and that'll let me know the people that have the uh the kind of a (laughs) that'll 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 let me know the kind of people that have the the kind of attention span for the sorts of people (laughs) because those those are the kind of people that i would like to have in my life and also i gotta be honest with you i do have a lot of people that contact you because of my public persona as a biohacking guy and kind of like a philosopher, life hacker kind of guy. I have a ton of people that contact me. And of course, I would really love to like get to know with all, get to know all those people, chit chat with those people about the different things that I discuss, but it's just a, a matter of time. There's only 24 hours in a given day. And so I prioritize the people that want to be a part of my secret society. That's right. I, I have a secret society on the internet. It's uh, it's kind of like other secret societies that you may have heard of, but uh, there's no funny hats or blood rituals or any of that weirdness yet, yet. I can't promise what will happen in the future. I have a secret society of people that we talk about these type of things and that if you've watched many documentaries about secret societies, you know that what makes secret societies really successful is that they practice an in-group preference with each other. They try to help each other out. And that's what we do in our secret society. And the way that my secret society works is I, I don't charge you like $10,000 a year to join it, like, like some people do with their secret societies. What I do is I ask that people invest at least a hundred dollars in their own biohacking, either with like nootropics or with these different anti-aging devices that I have more information about on my website. And if people are, are serious about their biohacking and they're invested in it, I have them send me their receipts for that. And then I get on Skype with them usually and have a, a chat with them and about what they're trying to accomplish. And a lot of times I'm able to answer some of the questions that they have about their biohacking goals and challenges. And then once, once they're vetted, once I know they're cool people, once I know they're not going to be like a disturbance, I admit them into our secret society, which is an online community that runs on, which is a really great social network system. It's like a low distraction social networking system that runs really intuitively. And if you've listened to this entire podcast, then me and you probably have a lot of values in common, and I'd love for you to be a part of that secret society. So as I like to say, I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and I look forward to a continued conversation with you.